Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's where W E A R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. 
check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. 
Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is going to force you to listen to a story about my hair. I have a lot of it, and I have a lot of stories about it. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 86, and it's a very special episode. No, not in the, like, after-school special way, although that would be pretty cool right now, now that I'm thinking about it. I was once in a play about the dangers of smoking, and I pushed a bike and talked about how I was cool from smoking, and then I don't remember how the play ended. It was elementary school. Anyway, when you really think about it, isn't every episode of Clothes Horse kind of an educational after-school special? This episode is extra special because various members of the world staff, that's the blog, have recorded short audio essays about their personal style. And let me tell you, Every story is different from the previous, and I couldn't be more delighted to put all of these together. Elise is going to talk about her journey from vintage vibe to actual vintage with a cameo from ModCloth and some talk of Nancy Drew. Iris is going to tell us why she refuses to believe that beauty is pain, and she's going to tell you a slightly gross story. Like, not the grossest thing we've probably talked about on here, I hope. Anyway, Phoebe will tell you the story of finally buying a parka, and trust me, it's a big deal. Carrie discusses the intersection between a changing body and her wardrobe, and it's going to give you a lot to think about. Emma will tell us how her tattoos are a window into her personal identity. Kelsey is going to set us straight on piercings. And I, as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about my hair. These stories are going to play one after another with no interruption from me. And I'll be back at the end to wrap it all up. So let's go. Hi, my name is Elise Nye, and I'm the current community outreach resident over at clotheshorse.world. The first time I remember having a really specific personal style was in high school, around 2010-2011. I fell super hard for the cutesy, vintage-inspired, quirky, Zoe Deschanel aesthetic that was super popular at the time. Cardigans, Peter Pan collars, ballet flats, and novelty prints with things like hot air balloons and woodland creatures were what I lived for. I remember sitting at the computer and filling up my cart with the quirkiest things I could find on mod cloth and just drooling over them. This obsession eventually led to my friend constantly referring to me as Nancy Drew. 
The combination of my cute vintage style and the way I carried myself at the time running between a million different extracurriculars really gave the effect that I was a prim mid-century sleuth on the verge of solving her latest mystery. I remember my mom started asking why my friend always called me Nancy Drew, and then one day she saw me coming downstairs wearing, I believe, a short navy blue skirt, a white Peter Pan collar top, and a yellow cardigan, and she was just like, yep, yep, I see it, Nancy Drew. Around this time, my love for retro feminine looks also extended to makeup, and I adopted a winged eyeliner, and I also got bangs, both of which I still rock today over 10 years later. The overall result of this all put together, which you can tell from the Nancy Drew moniker, was that I looked like something of a cartoon character. I definitely had at least one person send me some illustration on a book or postcard from anthropology saying that it looked exactly like me, and they weren't wrong. But seeking out retro-inspired clothing in modern stores eventually led me to seek out actual vintage clothing. I was no stranger to shopping secondhand as I frequented consignment stores growing up, but finding vintage was kind of magic. There was an appointment-only vintage store in the town over from where I lived, and my friends and I would go and find all sorts of treasures. The woman who ran the shop supplied costumes for movies, and the shop was chaos, and honestly, probably a huge fire hazard. We climbed through racks and dug through stacks of clothes piled high around tables, Whenever we pulled out a piece we liked, she would tell us what era it was from and a little bit about the style or brand if there was something of note. Having those sessions with her was eye-opening and made me fall in love with the character of true vintage pieces. Fast forward to now and my style is quite different from what it was back then, but it's still so rooted in that formational era. My current wardrobe is filled with vintage and vintage-inspired pieces, a few of which are actually from those high school vintage hunts. But I think the biggest difference between my style now and my previous style is that I kind of feel like I was just cosplaying as Zoe Deschanel back then. I saw a style I liked and something I could shape my identity around as a kid trying to figure out who I was, and I ran with it. Whereas... I don't fully know who I'd compare my style to now, if we're being honest. And it's not that I think my style is incredibly unique, but more that I find inspiration pretty much everywhere. Even if it's within specific pieces I find estate sailing or thrifting, or if it's deciding to tie a shirt I've had for years in a new way and making it fit more with how I'm feeling that day. I have settled into a pretty specific color palette, which ties all my varied pieces together. It's very heavy on orange, greens, and shades of red, usually a rosy pink or a maroon, along with your typical neutrals. I also feel like I gravitate to specific silhouettes and shapes that I feel comfortable in. I really love wide leg and flare pants, which pair perfectly with my favorite kind of shoe, which is an ankle boot with a two to three inch heel. I have so many of those and they're all different colors and have different feels, but they're all basically the same idea. Then I really love a good crop top. I really do. I definitely fall into the big pants, little shirt category, as they say. 
Uh, I recently got a white vintage dirndl top off Depop, which I've been wearing as a crop top, and I love it so much. But basically, I feel like if I were a paper doll, I would come with a mix and match variety of flare pants, crop tops, bonus points if it has a little puff sleeve, and ankle boots. Or if a little cartoon version of me popped up and gave commentary on what was going on, like in Lizzie McGuire, that would be my outfit. I kind of wonder if I'll look back on this version of my personal style in 10 years like I look back now at my Nancy Drew era, but I don't think I will. A lot of my favorite pieces I've had for years, and I don't foresee myself getting rid of them anytime soon. Also, when I'm buying something new, I really try to put a lot of thought into it and make sure it's something that I'll want in my collection forever, or at least until I wear it to pieces. Like I said before, I don't know exactly how to describe my style now or if there's one person I can compare it to, but I hope it's something that isn't just of this time. I hope it's actually of me. Hi Amanda, this is Iris or Iris, one of Close Horse That World editorial residents. I hope this message is clear enough because as you have probably noticed, I have an accent. There's something I left out from my essay and I wanted to discuss here and it's about things that I never wear. For example, people have commented for years on how they never see me wearing jewelry. And the thing is that I like how it looks, but my body has a complicated relationship with it. I'll start with the easier one, rings. I don't wear rings because for once I just drink a lot of water and pee a lot so I don't care for the hassle of removing them to wash my hands. On top of that, safety protocol standards at my old job meant that I couldn't wear any while working on the lab, and that was most days, so I just never wear them. Then there's necklaces. Until a few years ago, I had a skin tag on my neck, so every time I tried to wear a necklace, the damn thing would get caught up on it and it hurt, so I ditched those two. I must say, I still have all the necklaces my mother has given me, and I love looking at them. I just don't feel the need to wear them anymore, even though I got that skin tag removed. Now we get to the good part. If you're squeamish, maybe stop listening now. When I was maybe 9 or 10 years old, I swore to never wear earrings again, and here's why. As a birthday present, someone gave me these cute little stud earrings shaped like unicorns. I was a 90s kid, so I was obsessed with Lisa Frank and unicorns. Anyway, I put them on right away and was super happy with them until one day I woke up and my earlobe was extremely painful and throbbing. Well, it turns out that the backstopper, I think it was a butterfly backing, was embedded in my earlobe, like it was stuck inside my skin. So for the removal, I actually needed local anesthetics and there was an incision involved. Apparently there was some allergic reaction that caused my skin to swell up I don't remember very well, 
But the point is that I swore I would never ever wear earrings again. And I haven't. As a teen, when all my friends were getting piercings, I was just like, mm, no. <laughs> the sad part is that I like how earrings look and I've come across some very cute ones. But I just get flashbacks from that experience and move on. <laughs> Speaking of allergic reactions, I also skip mascara because I think it's not worth the itchiness and that red watery eyes are not the best look for me. <laughs> so I think when it comes to personal style, I'm just a very practical person that doesn't put up with feeling uncomfortable. And I just refuse to believe that beauty is pain. Though I spent much of my life prioritizing looks over comfort, it came to a head in my late teens and early 20s. I went through a breakup in my final year of high school that broke me in more ways than one. It was a disappointment I didn't know how to shake. I didn't want to get hurt that way again, so I became hyper-focused on how I could change myself to avoid it. I became a shadow of myself, constantly questioning whether I was doing the right thing, being the right person, and this worrying extended to my clothes. I overthought every outfit. I planned each evening for how I would dress the next day. I only cared about looks, not about how I felt. I would dress in synthetics even when they made me sweat like crazy. I would wear thin jackets in the middle of a Canadian winter even when everyone around me was dressed in a parka. I didn't actively avoid comfort when putting together outfits, but I took a certain pride in the fact that it wasn't part of the decision making. I guess I just wanted to look good enough that no one would want to leave me, as sad as that sounds. It has occurred to me that I spent most of my formative years looking miserable, whether it be because I was too hot, too cold, mostly too cold, or however else one can fathom being uncomfortable in an outfit. As I entered my late 20s and healed from that hurt, my focus turned from others' opinions to my own. I started thinking first and foremost of my feelings when getting dressed. I bought a parka. Now at the age of 31, I no longer want to force myself into a piece of clothing that I like the look of if it doesn't also make me feel comfortable. I've become more intentional with my purchases, buying items that fit my lifestyle. In my early 20s, I thought looks would bring me happiness or help me avoid hurt. Now I understand that if I prioritize looks over everything else, ultimately, I'll just be a miserable person wearing a nice dress. Hi, this is Carrie, executive editor of CloseHorse.World. Over the past month or so, I've had the privilege of reading several essays written by our community members in which they talk about their personal style. And when I say personal, I mean it. Our contributors really get into their emotional and psychological reasons for buying certain clothes. Collectively, I feel like this community is really taking a hard look at what triggers us to buy new clothes and why certain items don't stick around in our closets. I have to say, I've cleared out my closet several times in the past seven years, and I really need to do it again. It's not because I've been susceptible to trends or that my sense of style has changed radically. My issue is that over the past seven years, my size has been creeping up. I've had to buy new clothes to replace the items that either don't fit or aren't comfortable. I don't like having a jam-packed closet, so I make myself select some items that I'm not wearing to give away. This has gotten harder and harder to do. So as I've mentioned previously on the pod and in my essay on the blog, I was diagnosed with endometrial cancer when I was 35. I had a hysterectomy and additionally chemo and radiation, and I went into menopause as a result. I also gained weight over the course of my treatment. 
I know. I went into chemo thinking that I would be nauseous all the time and probably lose weight, but I was one of those lucky people who responded really well to anti-nausea drugs and steroids. I had a hearty appetite. For the first time in my adult life, I gave myself permission to eat absolutely whatever I craved. I also took a lot of really long naps, and I didn't have the energy to exercise. By the time my treatment was over, I had difficulty getting into most of my clothes. This was a really tough time for me. I felt like I should be happy and grateful for my survival, and that I should have experienced a great epiphany about how to spend the rest of my life. Instead, I felt flat and depressed. I also had to face some difficult issues at work and in my relationship. After drifting through cancer treatment and cutting myself all kinds of slack, I wanted to take control of my life. And one of the first things that I decided to do was embark on a weight loss journey. I was determined to get back to my pre-cancer weight. I assumed that it would take about five or six months of vigorous exercise and watching what I ate, but it actually took about a year. Throughout that year, I pre-scheduled my spinning and cross-training classes for the week and kept a food journal. And yeah, I lost the weight and I bought a bunch of new clothes and I was pleased with that. But I also noticed that I felt tired and cranky after working out, like a toddler who needed a nap. Going to a spinning class on a Saturday morning ended up kind of blowing the day because I'd be dragging ass afterwards. Then I started to feel really bored in the classes themselves. I just didn't want to be there, going through the motions. And one evening, when I was walking home from my neighborhood fitness studio, I burst into tears. Losing weight wasn't actually fixing the problems in my relationship or at work. I felt so frustrated and discouraged and kind of betrayed by the fact that focusing on myself physically wasn't fixing everything else. Fast forward a little bit, maybe six months more, and I managed to land a new job that I was really excited about. I threw myself into it, worked very long hours, and stopped going to the gym altogether. At first, I told myself that my size had probably plateaued and that I could maintain my weight with significantly less effort. The so-called maintenance phase. That proved to be untrue. For me, having a healthy diet, which means eating intuitively and not exercising much beyond the usual walking that comes with living in a city, has meant that I've steadily gained a little weight each year. I don't actually weigh myself, so my clothes are the main indicator that something has shifted. I'll put on a blouse that I wore the previous season and the armholes feel tight or the buttons gap a little over the chest. I realize that I have to wear a pair of pants unbuttoned while I'm sitting. After two years, a bunch of things simply didn't fit at all, and I decided that it wasn't worth the effort to get back into them. Some of these things were fast fashion, not major investments, and it was easy to let them go and buy new stuff. But over time, many of the garments that I've grown out of are clothes that I really love, and I'm not happy about parting with them. In some cases, I didn't get to wear them much. In other cases, I have a great memory associated with the piece. Giving up those clothes feels like giving up a piece of myself, a version of myself that I don't want to lose, which is crazy because I'm still here and I'm exactly the same person, regardless of what job I have or what size I am or what I wear. This has been the lesson of the pandemic. I'm not about to organize my life around staying the same size. Weight maintenance is a project and it's not the right project for me. I might find a type of exercise that I like and get into it for a bit, and maybe I'll lose some weight, but I know that realistically, the weight is going to come back on at some point. I accept the dynamics of my own body. 
My size and shape is a reflection of my priorities and other factors, like an aging metabolism, that aren't in my control. What I don't need is a closet full of clothes that don't support the changing seasons of my physical form. So for me, a sustainable wardrobe is one that is built around size flexibility. I have some clothes that fit comfortably through a weight gain journey of about 30 pounds. They include a cotton jumpsuit that ingeniously wraps and ties around the waist, a raglan sleeve dress that my mom made for herself in the late 70s, and a pair of wide leg trousers from Zara that are cut from this miraculous stretch knit fabric. When it comes to clothes, I know who my friends are. I won't be buying anything that is tailored to a specific size. I'm looking for garments that have generous armholes, that cinch with drawstrings, and expand with elastic. Yes, elastic is plastic, but having some stretch means I'll wear the item longer. I'm learning to sew and experimenting with replicating some of my favorite pieces. I've sketched a whole dream wardrobe based on size adjustability, and slowly, I'd like to either have these garments made, or I'll be prepared to buy similar pieces when I see them. Meanwhile, I have a closet full of clothes that need to be rehomed. At this point, the stuff that I'm not wearing is still precious to me, and I don't want to dump it all at Goodwill. I don't have a lot of patience for resale apps, and I'm excited about being able to participate in clothing exchanges again. I'm also considering upcycling my current wardrobe and figuring out creative ways to resize things that are too small. This mindset, that my clothes need to change, not my body, is the guiding principle of my personal style. Hi, my name's Emma, and I am one of the design residents for Clotheshorse.World. One aspect of my personal style that I don't talk about much is my tattoos. Every year as summer rolls around and it's finally warm enough on the Oregon coast to wear tank tops and shorts, which is just about two months out of the year, I start getting questions from people who haven't known me for a full calendar year yet. Things like, how many do you have? Where'd you get those? And what do they all mean? So I started getting tattooed when I was 18 or 19, and I overdrafted my bank account on both of my first two appointments. Those two were in Latin, the Scottish family clan mottos from two branches of my dad's family. First was Captain Majora for seek greater things, followed by Nuncum Obliviscar, which means I will never forget. I thought it meant something that they balanced each other so nicely. They were constant reminders to work toward a better life and higher pursuits, but also to always remember where I came from. After recognizing my family, I felt the need to commemorate my newfound college-fueled activism with a pair of parallel lines wrapping around my wrist. This symbolized equality, which was vague enough to be permanent, but solid enough of an idea that I figured I wouldn't change my mind. (laughs) And not wanting to forget about feminism, a friend and I got the words take up space etched on our arms together in the Apple typewriter font because uh, Helvetica seemed a little too on the nose. And it's, it was kind of all downhill from there, or like up, depending on your perspective, I guess. Um, I started to get more esoteric and occult-themed designs, a tarot card with a title in French to be extra mysterious, a little bit of sacred geometry with a crude joke hidden inside of it, uh, a take on a medieval woodblock print of a naked lady riding a rearing black horned goat. But some are more elaborate and frivolous, like a large piece on my thigh that hardly sees the light of day. It's a portrait of Louise from Bob's Burgers, and she's framed by two open switchblades and Kuchikopi, and there's a rippling ribbon that goes through it that says, Our Lady of Perpetual Misanthropy. But mostly, they were just some image that I found that struck some chord, 
for me at that time. And eventually, I just found myself wandering into my regular shop and pointing at the wall at something that made me giggle that day, and an hour later, it was permanently stitched onto my hip. (laughs) I love that I instilled so much meaning in my early tattoos, but I equally love that now I enjoy my body in a new way, and I'm not scared of the permanence. And I'm really lucky to know some really great tattoo artists, so the work is always high quality, but from there, the content can be as fun or as pretty or as meaningless as I want it to be. Tattoos are a big part of my visible identity, at least in those two months of the year, that it's nice enough outside, because they show so many different sides of my personality all at once, which for me is really hard to do with clothing. So that's just something that I enjoy for myself And I don't necessarily enjoy it for the interactions with other people, though I welcome it if people are kind and genuinely interested and not grabbing my arm to twist it and look at while I'm waiting their table, which used to happen a lot. But yeah, I think it's a great way to express yourself, and I love how different it is for everyone and can evolve so much over time. So yeah, that's my relationship with my tattoos and my personal style. Hey, everyone. This is Kelsey. I'm one of the design residents at Clothes Horse. I recently shared on the blog about how my style makes me feel like a sneaky rogue. So go check that out. But today I'm here to talk about piercings. While I consider my piercings to be a part of my overall style, I didn't have any until my mid-20s. I'm currently 32. In fact, I didn't get the usual earlobe piercings until two years ago. That's because, growing up, I was not like other girls. Ear piercings were common and feminine, and when you internalize misogyny like I did, you didn't want to be seen as girly. In the conservative, religious town of my childhood, most piercings were considered slutty, weird adornments for Satan, and maybe you were gay. I had no interest in piercings. Okay, that's not entirely true. (laughs) During the mid-2000s, there was one I wanted, thanks to the Noble Collection's Lord of the Rings jewelry replicas. They released a more affordable version of Arwen's Evenstar necklace, but it was a belly button ring. Very 2000s. So my obsession with Lord of the Rings and Jasmine Watson, the jewelry designer, was stronger than my piety and my narrow view of what was correct. As of today, I have nine piercings. Um, Three of them are on my nose. They're definitely part of my style because they're right there on my face for everyone to see. And they're always, like, there on my nose. (laughs) Unlike other jewelry, like rings and necklaces that I would remove... Um, I got a septum ring just before the pandemic, and then got my nostrils pierced about a month ago. I was vaccinated for that. So, most of my family, friends, and coworkers have not seen these because I've been quarantining and wearing a mask. Uh, so, I'm working to accept that there may be reactions, and that is outside of my control, and that is okay. So, one thing I've noticed is that septum piercings get a lot of hate. Um, I want to cover 
five reasons for this um, because apparently this bothers me and thinking through reasoning helps me feel better. So one, they're trendy or overdone. Septums are over 4,000 years old and have been worn all over the world for various reasons. They're nothing new. Yes, they are currently becoming more popular, but it is impossible to be completely unique and avoid all trends. All things are overdone. Trends are not inherently evil. Why not let people enjoy things? While it's important to think critically about what you like, beyond that, what is the problem? Two, they only look good on conventionally attractive, young, white, skinny, feminine women with delicate noses. This is a common refrain used to justify hatred of basically any style choice. We've heard it. Fat people can't wear short shorts. If you're old, over 30, you better stop wearing crop tops. Tooth jewelry is trashy if you're black, etc. None of these things are true. You know what's actually ugly? Dictating what others can wear. Other people aren't window dressing to one person's taste. Three, apparently septum rings are for cringy people who think that they are different. Technically, fewer people have pierced noses than those who have plain unadorned noses. So it is less common. I'm also not under the delusion that I'm the only person on earth who has ever gotten my nose pierced. I think most adults are mature enough to accept and understand that plenty of other people have similar style, interests, knowledge, and life experience. However, I think it is natural and not a bad thing for everyone to feel that they are kind of unique. No one else can perfectly understand your thoughts, feelings, and perception of life. Four, people with septum rings look like bulls. Yes, a single piece of jewelry makes me look just like a male cow who fucks. If anything, bulls would look like humans, considering more of us have been wearing rings for more of history. 5. They're slutty. People wear body jewelry for a wide variety of reasons. Clothing and accessories do not correlate to a certain number of sexual partners. This is rape culture and slut-shaming. So before you condemn a trend or style, or you hear others talk about a style that they hate, think about why. This is something I've struggled with in the past, and honestly, I still do a little. On a positive note, five things I really like about piercings. One, they're an efficient filter for judgmental, bitter people. If someone is really upset about my personal style choice, I don't want to be friends with them. Two, I'm afraid. There is so much in life we can't control. There is unavoidable pain. But I can pay money and go out of my way to choose this. It feels kind of empowering. 
Three, anatomy. The same piercing can look different and have different placement on someone else. It can become an affirmation and acceptance of the wide variation on physical features. I just think that's neat. Four, it's a way to be more positive about my meat suit. Decorating things makes me feel better. Five, they're shiny. I wake up in the morning and I have sparkles on my face. My inner child appreciates that aspect. So I don't know what piercing I'll get next, but it's likely that I will acquire more. Maybe I'll get that even star belly button ring after all. Additionally, I am saving up to get a body mod. Pointy elf ears. The moral here is Tolkien is to blame for my sinful ways. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hi, I'm Amanda, and you already know who I am. Here's my personal style story. I'm a pretty average-looking person. Sure, I'm a peacock, a wild and crazy clothes horse. Why do you think the podcast is called this? And I'm always wearing a, quote, look, no matter where I am or am not going even for the last year and a half, when I have been home for days and days and weeks and weeks on end, I still get dressed into an outfit, an all caps or perhaps italicized outfit. If you notice me walking down the street, my clothes will grab your attention because otherwise I'm a pretty average looking person. I'm neither attractive nor unattractive. A friend once referred to me as pretty, and I automatically assumed they were about to ask to borrow money. They didn't, but I'm still waiting. <laughs> I'm not tall. I'm not short. I'm not thin. I'm not fat. I'm not beautiful. I'm average with a coating of wild clothing and white eyeliner. I have one physical attribute that is a little remarkable that feels attractive, that is truly incorporated into every outfit I wear. And that's my hair. It's long, it's thick, it's wavy, it lands just at my belly button. There's a lot of it. For people who have known me as an adult, they know me as a person with very long center part hair, always. I think if you ask someone to draw me, it's the only feature of me that they would remember other than perhaps my omnipresent large hat. When you think about it, or maybe you didn't know this, but a large hat is the perfect pairing with ultra long hair. I don't know enough about wine and cheese here to make an accurate comparison. So I'll just say that ultra long hair and a wide brimmed hat are the boozy seltzer and sea salt popcorners of above-the-neck fashion, the perfect pairing. Having long hair is actually new for me. New as in not something I've had my whole life. New as in something I didn't get to have until I was well into adulthood. If you've been listening long enough, then you know that I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, a part of the state that some, not me, like to call Pennsylvania. 
In a pre-internet era when only the truly middle class got to have cable television, we were always a good decade behind all of the style and fashion trends. And so 80s hair lasted well into the 90s, like early 80s hair too, all the way into the late 90s. Younger women and teenagers had sky-high mall bangs supported by bottle after bottle of Aquanet, which, by the way, smells like poison. I've smelled it so many times growing up. As I was writing this, I wondered, does Aquanet still exist? And, well, the answer is yes. And Wikipedia says, quote, the spray itself is known for its stronghold and distinctive smell. Yes, Aquanet. This was an era of owning multiple curling irons of various sizes, of teasing your hair into its perfect, most voluminous helmet, of soaking the whole thing with a cloud of Aquanet and running out the door, of keeping Aquanet in your locker, in your desk, in your car, everywhere, because your hair was going to need a lot of spray to keep that height. (laughs) But that was the young women. There were other rules for the older women. And I use the term older extremely vaguely here, but if my memory serves me correctly, it seemed to indicate women who were 30 years and up, or any age but married with children, with the caveat that divorced women under 30 were also invited to indulge in the mall bang look while they looked for another husband or bartended over at the Naughty Pine or the VFW. But the older women, all the other women, had short hair. Maybe a little bit of an extremely short bob that gave their head the silhouette of a perfect mushroom. Those women with that hairstyle might dabble in some bangs teasing because they had a little bit more hair to play with. But more likely, these women would cut their hair super short, even cutting it perfectly around their ears. Their ears were just right there. Then they would leave the top a little bit longer as a staging ground for, you guessed it, a perm. This perm, always tiny curls, always being over-teased, over-processed, over everything bad for your hair, tended to turn their heads into an orangey brown Q-tip. Everyone's hair turned orangey brown from all of the chemicals, the perms, the laying out with a head full of sun in sprayed on, maybe lemon juice for the more natural moms. As the 90s progressed, more and more of this orangey brown hair, I mean, I can picture the exact shade when I close my eyes, this orangey brown hair would become burgundy as dying one's hair red from a box became more and more common. It's a shade of burgundy I see in women still. That while certainly not trendy, certainly not something I'm going to see in a magazine or on Refinery29, is something that reminds me that I am around my people. That that woman might be related to someone I grew up with or maybe work at the dollar store with my mom. In York County, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, during the 80s and 90s, young women had longer hair, older women had short hair, but everyone's hair looked equally terrible. My hair is extremely thick, and it is extremely coarse. Dustin regularly helps me extract massive rat's nests that form when I skip one night of brushing or I get stingy with the conditioner. It's work. 
there is a careful technique for washing. Then I have to comb through the conditioner with a wet brush, which, yes, is different from a dry brush. I try to wash it only every few days with dry shampoo on the off days, and I use a special hair oil on the bottom few inches. It is work, and it is work I do not mind because it's important to me. I was born with a full head of dark hair, like a shocking amount of hair on a little baby, but that all disappeared when I was diagnosed with cancer and began chemo. And my hair didn't come back for a long time. My grandpa Les would chuckle every time he began his favorite story about me. He and my grandma took me to the North Hills Mall, RIP, it's a shopping center now, to see Santa. And I said all I wanted for Christmas was a hair dryer and some hair of my own to dry. <laughs> I think I was three or four then. And he and my grandma did buy me a little hair dryer for the peach fuzz that was reemerging from my scalp. This new hair was strangely blonde, as if I'd seen something frightening. But within a year, I had some real hair. And no one, no one hated my hair more than my mom did. As my mother, it was her job to make me look presentable for the world at large. We all know that mothers are judged when their children look untidy. Interestingly, no one ever asks, where is the father who is responsible for this pig pen of a child? No one says that. It's always the mom's fault. And my mom hated my hair. How do I know this? She told me every day. It was an ugly color, dirty blonde. Yes, I'm finally admitting to all of you, I am not a natural brunette. Actually, I don't even know if my real hair color is that bad, but I've been covering it up for so long because I was led to believe it was so ugly. That's some food for thought there. My mom specifically said it was such an ugly color that it couldn't help but look dirty and unkempt. And it was impossible to brush and detangle. And my mom made brutal attempts at it. I could hear my hair breaking as she drove the brush through with such force, scratching my scalp and inflaming every nerve on my head as she did it. My mom hated dealing with my hair, but she wouldn't let me deal with it myself. She had some fear that if I were left to care for my own hair, I would end up with head lice. She washed my hair every few days in the kitchen sink. It was always too hot, always so uncomfortable. There was never conditioner involved. And afterwards, she would brush it all out. The brushing was a nightmare, something... I tried to avoid at all costs, like disappearing as soon as I saw my mom grabbing the bottle of shampoo and taking it out to the kitchen. I didn't want to be involved in this. I hoped that she was only going to wash my brother's hair. The brushing was terrible. My head was yanked in all directions, and I would be yelled at if I moved my head. So I had to focus all of my physical strength on my neck, like this neck has all the power that my body has so that it will hold my head in perfect stillness. I just tried to do that to mimic that feeling of holding my neck so still with all my strength and it made my eyes hurt for some reason. I don't think it's a good thing. Don't do it. Don't do it. But I could not move while my hair was being brushed and I certainly 
could not react. If I expressed any sort of pain, a mere ow or, oh, you're pulling my hair, the punishment would happen. And the punishment was terrible. I would just close my eyes and breathe deeply, imagining other places, other times, all of the exciting things I might do in the future when I was grown up and could wash my own hair. If I whimpered or even just flinched, the punishment happened. And that was the scissors came out. And my mom would cut off all of my hair. Not even give me that middle ground mushroom-shaped haircut. No, it would be the full, super short, ears cut out haircut that you might find on a woman named Dot who played bingo with my grandma over at the American Legion. It was not a haircut that an elementary school student or even a tween would have. And my grandma's friend Dot certainly had her hair cut by a trained hairdresser in a hair salon, not by her angry mother at the kitchen table. There was a different look, trust me. That haircut made me ugly. With my glasses and my perfect grades, it turned me into the nerdiest and ugliest girl you could imagine. No cute clothes or great personality, none of that inner beauty I was being told about, None of that was going to counteract the fact that I was ugly. It meant that boys at school would call me ugly to my face. It meant that popular girls would never hang out with me. Or maybe they would just so I could be their ugly friend and make them look prettier by comparison. No matter how tough I might have hoped to be as a kid, those scissors came out an awful lot. It was Too easy to lose focus and just say, ow, to get caught up in the moment. Because you know what? The hair brushing hurt a lot. I know now as an adult that it didn't have to be that way, but I didn't know that as a kid. And so I always blamed myself for being weak, for losing focus. It was my fault. And my mom was sure to tell me that, that I had ugly ass grandma hair. It's all my fault. There aren't a lot of pictures of me from when I was a kid. My mom just wasn't, isn't sentimental. And in some ways I'm relieved because I can't bear how horrible I look in the few that I have. Short hair, big glasses, smaller than everyone else. It hurts me to look at that girl who just wanted to be pretty, but never was. My mom had some friends. I think maybe they worked with her at some point and they were a miserable couple, like an, a commercial for why you shouldn't get married. It was a husband and a wife who would loudly admit that they hated each other with two kids, a boy and a girl, who they loudly berated and insulted in front of us. One day, this miserable nuclear family came over to visit and both of the children, the boy and the girl, had shaved heads, like completely all hair removed from their heads. Not a short haircut, just full bald. Previously, the little girl who was four or five years younger than me had long hair and two braids. She was cute and vibrant, and I would always let her play with my dolls, even though I was very territorial about my dolls. I just liked this girl, and there was something there that reminded me of me or my life. 
I was too young to dissect that or see it in full. I asked their mother, I can't believe I was bold enough to ask this, why, why were both the kids now bald? And the mother loudly proclaimed that those kids had been, quote, stupid enough. Yes, that phrase has lived with me for decades, that they were stupid enough to get head lice, so now they were paying the consequences. Because in her mind, lice isn't something that happens by accident that's out of your control. And there's no other treatment for head lice. There's no trip to Walmart to buy the shampoo, no little metal comb to extract the eggs. Nope. The only solution for children who were, quote, stupid enough to get head lice was to shave those poor children's heads. And I looked at the little girl, and she was just so fucking sad. I could see that she had been crying for hours. She seemed so deflated. She spent the visit in the corner, staring sadly into space, and it reminded me of all those shampoo days gone awry that started with a bad brushing and then turned into the scissors and then led to me sitting in the closet of my bedroom crying about losing all my hair yet again. I remember thinking at the time that those parents were horrible monsters who abused their kids by cutting off their hair and hating them. I'd never been a fan in the first place, but I certainly knew now that I didn't like them. Eventually, a few years later, a lot more years later than you might have guessed, I was allowed to start washing and brushing my own hair, but my mom still kept cutting it off. She'd say, it looks bad. It looks greasy. You have bad hair. If you can't have pretty hair, at least you can have neat hair. You're just not good enough at fixing your hair to deserve to have long hair. This is what I grew up hearing. So my hair never even reached my shoulders for years and years. I love hats. I have since elementary school. I wore a sailor hat to school every day in seventh grade which caused a girl named Jessica to scream at me, I hate you so much for wearing that hat. My first real boyfriend, Brad, is a few years older than me, and he went to the same school, and he told me that everyone used to call me cute hat girl, and they all thought I was super cool. But who knew? Because I was just trying to cover up my cursed hair. When I was in my early 20s, I moved to Portland, Oregon. This meant I was a lot closer to my dad, my stepmother, and my two sisters, Kelly and Christy. And my sisters had long hair. And I could see that their hair was similar to mine. Thick and coarse. Hard to manage. But somehow they did, with the help of my awesome stepmother, Karen. I guess they used some conditioner. No one told them that they had bad hair. It wasn't even up for conversation. They just had hair. And it made me wonder, could my hair be nice? Because for years I'd been cutting it short, trying to straighten it, putting so much time and money into this wretched hair, and ultimately just giving up and just plopping on a hat or some barrettes or whatever I could do to be somewhat presentable. So I started to let it grow and grow and grow. And yes, it took some work to care for it, but so much less than before. 
so much less product, so much less fretting. I didn't even have to wash it as often. And it reached a point where people said, wow, you have such pretty hair. How do you do it? And I would look in the mirror and not hate myself for the first time ever. Like, I looked pretty good. I looked complete. And over time, my hair would become a security blanket. It obscured my big boobs, another thing about myself that I hated, and I could use it to cover my face. I would look in my hair in the mirror and I would say, where have you been my whole life? But you have to remember, I come from a place where only the young, whatever that means, are allowed to have long hair. And certainly, there's been a long-time belief generally out in the world, well beyond central Pennsylvania, that women over 30 can't wear mini skirts or crop tops or whatever other nonsense I hope we're all canceling right now. And long hair has been one of those things. Like there's some magical age where you're supposed to cut off your hair, burn your going out clothes, and I don't know, put on some slacks. I'm not sure what that age is because I refuse to acknowledge that thinking. Like, I don't even want to engage in a debate with someone about it because I feel that it's ageist, it's sexist, it's just another way to police women's bodies, and I don't negotiate with that kind of bullshit. If you believe these things, that at a certain age you're supposed to give up things that are a part of you, that are a part of your personal style, that make you feel like your best self, you're just internalizing all this misogyny, all this bullshit culture around age and women, that's all made up. It's not even real. It's not even based in scientific fact. So delete that from your brain. Long after my mother started allowing me to wash my own hair and I grew up and moved as far away as possible, my mother shifted her abuse toward me into a new direction, a more insidious direction. Like when I say or read the word insidious, I picture my mom on the phone with me. And this new strategy was pretty simple, but genius. Basically just saying as much terrible stuff about me behind my back to anyone who would listen while being sweet as pie to my face. Her campaign was so effective that no one would pick me up from the airport when I came home to visit. And no one cared about seeing me. I didn't see my brother for years and years and years because she had convinced him that I didn't care about him. She told my entire family in many different ways that I thought I was better than all of them. And people believed it. I was effectively alone in the world, but I didn't know it. Or maybe I did have an inkling of it. And one of the more, I don't know, like innocuous things that she liked to say about me to other people was that I was, quote, too old to have long hair. And it was embarrassing to her that I did. Like, apparently, she just harped about this to anyone who would listen. My brother, my sister-in-law, my child, even her own coworkers. And then finally, when everything came to a head, when it was revealed that all of this had been happening for years, that apparently my mother had never actually loved or liked me or really any of us, I heard about the hair thing. This woman who was supposed to love me unconditionally 
had robbed me of something seemingly minor, but actually important for years and years. Yes, it's only hair. But imagine how much better my self-confidence would have been. Maybe I would have made more friends or did more activities or, I don't know, could look at my photos from my childhood without feeling sick. My hair was never terrible or impossible to manage. My mom just didn't want to deal with it. Or maybe she even just a little bit wanted me to feel as bad as she did. Certainly our house was filled with diet soda, diet foods, crystal light, and everything was low fat, zero fat. She was always on a diet and her self-loathing was broadcast for all in our house to hear. Maybe this was her way of ensuring that someone else felt the same way she did. When I look at my hair now, it's a part of me that I cannot bear to lose. And maybe I will, but not by choice. And it's not just a part of my personal style. It's not just the element of every outfit or the perfect compliment to a big hat. It's a badge of defiance of survival, of fuck you to an abusive, lonely childhood. It's a big banner in all caps that screams, I belong to me and you cannot hurt me anymore. In 2014, a British coupon company called Voucher Cloud. Yeah, I'm not making that up, although it does sound super fake and sketchy. Definitely sounds like a website that would steal your passwords, but it's not, I swear. And Voucher Cloud conducted a study that revealed that the average woman has $550 worth of unworn clothing in her closet. The majority of the women surveyed admitted to having never worn at least 20% of the items in their wardrobes. The participants were also asked why these items were never worn. They were given the option to choose any responses that applied to their situation, and 75% admitted to preferring other pieces instead, while 51% cited negative reactions from their partner or friends. And yes... This survey is seven years old, and it only focuses on women, but we know that this behavior is just as relevant as ever. Or at least it was in the old pre-pandemic days. I like to hope that things are better now, but we don't know. Hopefully it's all changing. We also know that pre-pandemic, in the United States, people bought one item of clothing every five and a half days. And I can't help but think that we buy or at least bought so many clothes that we didn't really like, that we didn't feel comfortable wearing, that just sat in our closet unloved because we were trying to figure out who we were, who we are, trying to sort out how people saw us and how that aligned with how we wanted to be seen. We wear specific clothing to fit in. We wear other clothing to stand out. And it kind of all depends on where you stand on the fit in and stand out spectrum. Maybe you one day want to blend in and the next day you want people to notice you. We wear specific items and adopt certain trends 
so we can signal to others, look, hey, I'm one of you. Please, please be my friend. I remember wanting a specific ribbed boat neck t-shirt from Express so badly in junior high. I laugh when I think of this shirt all the time because all of the cool popular girls were wearing them. And I thought if I were one, then I too could be one of them. I saved my babysitting money and I bought one on sale. And guess what? I still wasn't popular. And that shirt was ugly and it did not look good on me. It moved to the back of my closet after one wear. And every time I saw it, I felt ashamed. I felt foolish. I thought, that's so many hours of babysitting down the drain. That dumb pear green shirt was just the beginning of a long line of things I bought to wear so I could seem cool or popular, successful, tough, edgy, smart, or really any adjective you can think of, anything other than who I was and am. All of the audio essays, that's by the way what I call them now, um, in this episode were ostensibly about different topics, at least on the surface, but they all have the same underlying theme the extra strong thread that was just connecting all of them. And that's that the key to personal style is knowing yourself and dressing for yourself, not for anyone else. Being yourself is the best style. You know, sometimes I put on my little tinfoil fashion is a capitalist conspiracy hat. Okay, actually, it's a really nice felt hat, but nonetheless, when I'm wearing my conspiracy hat, which is most of the time, I think about the fashion industry as it exists right now, and I realize that it's totally divorced from style. Fashion is about selling you stuff. Selling you the most stuff as often as possible. And that means subtly telling you all the time that you as you are in your most comfortable, truest state, is not good enough. You must be constantly aspiring for something else. You must adorn yourself in constant newness, brands, labels, trend after trend after trend. The fashion industry says to you, hey, you don't know what's best for you. You don't even know who you are. We'll tell you what you need and who you should wish to be, and you can be all of that if you just buy these wide leg crop jeans and this sleeveless turtleneck crop shirt. Of course, in a few months or even weeks, fashion will tell you to cast that aside in, f- in favor of the next you that you're supposed to want to be. It's a cycle. <laughs> it never ends. I hate fashion. I hate the bloated, selfish, greedy juggernaut of more and more and more. You know, plenty, I know so many of them, plenty of creative, talented people work in that industry, and many of them have so many amazing ideas. But fashion takes all of this creativity and distorts it all into the most profitable, easiest, most disposable product. Style and fashion, they're two different things. I mean, I love style. Style is this creative expression in which all of us can participate, no matter how much money we do or do not have, no matter how many clothes we actually own. 
Style is you, the truest you, the you that people trust, appreciate, the you that people fall in love with. Your style is the best style because it is you and you are the best. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Please, as always, rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. And please, please go check out the blog, closehorse.world, where you'll find lots of incredible content created by everyone in this episode, including me. And don't forget to follow closehorse.world on Instagram. We have so much cool stuff going on over there. And it's fun and interesting. You don't want to miss it. If you like the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you want to support my ability to continue doing it, please consider supporting me via Patreon. You'll find out more at patreon.com slash podcast, or you can send a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. It's the fun podcast. We are taking a couple weeks off. It's summer, baby, and we need to go outside. But we will be back, and there's plenty of back content for you to catch up on. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.